Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. All right, thanks very much for that reading, Rolf. Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Benediction. My name is Jordan Moss, and I'm on the leadership team here, and uh, it's my privilege to speak to you this morning about this passage. There's a lot, lot to unpack, as you just heard. So I want to start this morning briefly by talking about siblings. Who here has at least one sibling? Pretty much everyone. Maybe, maybe one or two, only children. Okay, and um, who here is a youngest sibling? Hands up. Okay, a fair few younger siblings. I'm also a youngest sibling. I have two older sisters who I'm very close to now, but they're, they're four and six years older than me. And sometimes when we were kids, shockingly, we got into conflict. And sometimes they would pick on me being the only boy and the youngest. And sometimes they would be upset if, if we got into trouble, kind of all of us, or if they got into trouble and they were treated differently than I was treated. Has that ever happened to any of you guys? That, that being the youngest, sometimes you maybe didn't get into as much trouble as your older siblings, and that might have, might have only made them a little more upset. It's all perception. I, I think that's true. I think in my family that's true, but, but, but generally. And, and one of the reasons why, why that might happen, potentially, kids, if you're listening, one of the reasons it might happen is because if you are the older sibling, it might be that you are treated differently because you've, you've been around longer, you have, you've learned some lessons, and you just know more. And maybe more is expected of you because you're older. And I think... I think that often is, is what happens when, when parents treat us differently. And I was trying to think of a great example I could share with you from my childhood about this, but I didn't actually have one. So I asked my wife, Leah, who's just in our room, and she had a good one that I'm going to share with you from hers. But when, when Leah was little, she has two older siblings, but she has one younger sibling who, again, she's now, she's now close to, but they would have conflict sometimes. And one day when Leah was little, she went into the bathroom and her sister had taken her favorite, one of her favorite stuffed animals that looked like this, whose name very inventively was Lammy into the bath with her and was playing within the bath and Leah was upset because you know she didn't say that her sister could take Lammy into the bath and be it's a stuffed animal it's not good for them you know kids just maybe make them moldy it's not good um so Leah very calmly and wisely you know went and found some scissors and decided to cut off some of her sister's hair um and she doesn't remember exactly how her parents responded but I think it's fair to say they probably came down a bit harder on her because she was older she should have known better, but she kind of acted, acted out of spite and, and did things she shouldn't have. So we're not going to actually be talking about siblings or sheep that much this morning, but we're going to talk about passages of scripture where there's a lot of people doing things that are wrong, that are angering God, but where some of those people really should have known better. This is the second week in an eight-part series we're doing on the book of Amos from the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. And this is a kind of a longer series. It's going to take us all the way through to our Advent series in December. If you have not read Amos recently or have never read it at all, don't worry. You're not going to kind of be behind. We're going to do a little recap in a second of what you might have missed last week. So yeah, so you know what's going on. And this, this, this um, series is called No Justice, No Peace. You saw kind of that last slide because those are two of the key themes of this book. Part of the prophetic word that, that Amos brings to Israel um, and the surrounding nations, as we'll see today, is that there isn't going to be peace for them because there is no justice, because there's these crimes that are going on um, that are both against humanity and against God. So that's, that's kind of the, what we're talking about today. So we're actually going to look, I know Rolf read kind of the, the last part, we're actually going to look today at a pretty big passage from, from Amos 1, 3, kind of all the way through to the end of verse of chapter two. We're not going to read the whole thing, but it's kind of a lengthy section we're going to look at a bit. And then we're going to see what takeaways we have from, from Amos's words 
to the Gentile nations and similar takeaways there are for from Amos's words to Judah and Israel, to God's people, and then look at what this means for us as a church now here in, in 2022 in Hamilton, and lastly, if you take home questions. So brief recap from, from last week or just about things going on at this time, if you're not intensely familiar with the 8th century BC, which you might not be. So the, the person who this book is named after Amos is a prophet, but his his kind of original calling is he was a shepherd and he was a fig tree farmer from a village called Tekoa. We'll see a map in a second, but Tekoa is, is near Jerusalem and it's quite close to the border between Judah and Israel. And this is a time, as I said, kind of in the mid eighth century, around, around 760, where there's a, there, the people of God are in two different kingdoms. So they've split up. There's a Northern kingdom called Israel, a Southern kingdom called Judah. We'll hear about both of them today, but you just need to know they're different places. Uh, and, and Amos is from Judah originally, but he goes and he prophesies in, in Israel. At this time, kind of the other big thing you need to know is that if you were looking from the outside, just at kind of how the politics are going, how the you know, competitive world of the, of the Middle East in, in the ancient world was going, it seems like things are going well for both Israel and Judah. They're winning a bunch of battles. Um, this king of Israel, Jeroboam II, is, is kind of seen as this powerful king. And, and they're becoming wealthy. But beneath that, there's a lot of issues going on. There's a lot of idol worship. And, and although they're becoming wealthy, there's a lot of economic inequality. There are some people who are becoming insanely wealthy and people who are so poor, they're being sold into slavery because they can't pay their debts. So it's a time where there's, there's a lot of that going on. So that's, that's our recap. Um, that's, that's what you need to know going into today. A few just um, themes to keep in mind today. Mike spoke last week and he really introduced three themes for the book of Amos. And those were cities, guilt, and wrath, as we see there. And so I want us to keep those in mind. There's going to be a real pattern that's going to develop. You'll, you'll see as we go through, and if you, if you read this at home later, or you've read it before today, there is kind of like a stanza. There is a, a message against a, a whole bunch of Gentile nations in a row, six of them in a row. And they all follow this pattern where it talks about the city or the nation first, and then it talks about their guilt or their sin, and then it talks about God's wrath. And we're going to go through a couple of those so you see the pattern, then we're going to kind of jump down, but keep this in mind. I'll use the word nation a bunch versus city. Some of these are like little independent city-states. Some of them are kind of more what we would call kingdoms or nations, so I'll use those interchangeably. And the second kind of concept of guilt or sin, the word that's used here in Hebrew a whole lot in Amos 1 and 2, it can be translated as sins, and most of our Bibles do, and that's, that's correct. But the ancient Hebrew word, and I apologize to anyone who speaks ancient Hebrew, is, is something like pesha. And, and while that word does mean sin, it also has these connotations of rebellion against authority and wrongdoing that violates the law and transgressions and crimes. So when we hear the word sin here, it, it, read in this passage, it does mean sin, but it also means that these are crimes. These are, these are acts of rebellion. This is, this is wrongdoing that is, that is serious. It's not, just, it's not just that it's sin. And that word evidently is really well suited to this passage. It's that word's used 93 times in the whole Old Testament. And 10 of those are just here in this book of Amos that's only nine chapters long. It's not, it's not that long. So, so as we go through here in just a minute, let's remember these three themes, the cities, the nations, their guilt or their sin, the Pesha and, and God's wrath. So we're going to start with, we're going to start with Damascus. So the way that that Amos 1, 3 to the end, and, and the beginning of Amos 2 is laid out, is there's these, these messages against all these different kingdoms. And 
to keep me from talking for an hour this morning. I'm just going to go through a couple of them first, and then we're going to jump ahead to Amos 2. But the first one's against Damascus. So let's hear what the Lord says against Damascus in verses 3 to 5 of, of Amos 1. And if you hear Bibles, obviously, feel free to follow along. I'm going to read from the NIV this morning. So starting in verse 3, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with the sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the, gates of the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Aben and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Now, there's a lot of place names there you might not be familiar with. I don't want to get kind of too bogged down in that, but, but this follows our basic pattern, right? We see the nation we're talking about, the city at Damascus, which is up there kind of in the northeast. We hear what their crimes are. There's a couple different commentators who have different thoughts on what it means to, to thresh people with sledges having iron teeth, but maybe the most generous interpretation is using really, really brutal military tactics against civilians. Like this is very violent, evil stuff that's going on. And we hear the wrath, right? We hear that God is going to send down fire. He's going to destroy the gates of Damascus. He's going to destroy the king. It's serious punishment that's coming. Okay, so that's, that's our word against Damascus, God's word against Damascus. And we're going to see this continue in a second about Gaza, who's more on the southwest there. So we're going to keep going here in verses 6 to 8, where this pattern you'll see continues. So starting in verse 6, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captive the whole, whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron to the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. So again, we see that pattern, right? We see the identification of the city of the nation of Gaza. We see, we see what they've done. You know, they've sold whole communities for slavery. They have, we would call that in our modern way, you know, human trafficking. And, and, and the wrath of God here again is, is similar. It's going to be fire that comes down the walls. It's going to be the king's going to be destroyed. It's, you know, it's serious, it's serious wrath. And so the next kind of part that I'm not going to go through each single one because they are a bit repetitive, but you'll, you've seen the pattern, I think, is there's also messages against Tyre, against Ammon, Moab, and Edom. And so, you know, Tyre, their sins are, are again, selling people into slavery or human trafficking. Edom specifically is called out in this passage for violence against women. Ammon similarly is, is called out for violence against women and for trying to wipe out a whole population of people, what we would now call genocide. And, and Moab is called out for, for killing a neighbor's king and, and causing political instability and all kinds of issues. So, so those are what God has to say in this passage about, about these Gentile nations. Okay, so that's, that's the six that surround. And as you, obviously we might not be as familiar as these nations, but if you were at the time hearing this message and you were in Israel, you'd think, okay, those are those are kind of all our neighbors. That's kind of, that's kind of everyone. And this, this section of Amos is set up really to kind of put Israel and Judah in the crosshairs and, and they're what comes next. So, so let's kind of put the pause button on the Gentile nations. We're going to come back to them for a second, but we've heard that judgment's going to come on them. Wrath is going to come on them. We've heard about their, their sins. And now we're going to jump ahead. If you're, if you have your Bibles open, your phones or anything to the second chapter of Amos to verses four and five. And this is where God speaks against Judah. So starting in verse four, and this is yeah, up in the screen there. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. 
because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. So remember again that um, Judah and Israel are the kingdoms where, where the Jews live. These are the places where um, the people who were, who were brought out of Egypt, who were saved from slavery, who were given this land, where they've gone. And, and God, you know, before this time gave them the law. And really their, you know, their big sin here is that they have they've rejected the law, they've rejected God, they've rejected his decrees. And, um, and again, you know, following that pattern, the wrath again is similar in, in verse five, where it says, you know, he's going to send fire on Judah. He's going to consume the fortress of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem in the ancient world was this massive city with, with, with huge walls and fortresses and citadels all along it. And sure enough, they were destroyed after this. So we've now come to, to the part that Rolf read for us earlier to verses six to 16. And I want you to, to listen to this and, and keep in mind you know, that, that pattern of the three things we talked about this morning. We're going to kind of break this into three chunks as we go. So we're going to start here with just verses six to eight. So his name is two, six to eight. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. And so stopping there for a second, this is the, we know what the nation is, we know it's Israel. And this is our, this is our sin, this is our guilt portion here. And, and these crimes, you know, these transgressions against the law, they're serious. These are people who are oppressing the poor. They're literally selling people into slavery because they can't pay their debts. You know, they're denying the poor the chance to defend themselves in court. They're engaging in sexual morality. And, and that sexual morality is taking place in temples as part of worship to pagan gods that aren't the God of Israel. So, you know, these are some really, really, really problematic sins. And they're terrible. But there's also, there's also a second component to the guilt and the sin of Israel here that starts at verse 9 and goes to 12. So this is starting in verse 9. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought them up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people? Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded that the prophets not to prophesy. So this part, there's no equivalent in in the other messages against the Gentile nations, right? There is this special relationship the Israelites have with God that makes their sins so problematic here, right? And, 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 and God says here, you know, these, this is what I've done for you. I, I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. I provided for you during this 40 years you were in the wilderness. I gave you the promised land and there are people who lived there easily, lived there previously, and I, I gave it to you. You know, I gave you prophets to speak, to speak my truth to you. And I gave you these Nazarites who, who took a special vow and they followed special rules and they were, they were set apart or they were kind of consecrated for God. But despite all that God did for Israel, they, they sinned like the other nations, like the Gentile nations around them. This is the last kind of chunk here. We're going to look at it. Verse 13 to 16. This is where the wrath of God, the judgment of God comes for Israel. So starting in verse 13. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, and fleet-footed soldiers will not get away. 
and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. So it's clear here, the wording here is very military, um, militaristic. The, you know, this kind of lists four different kinds of soldiers who are all going to, to fail when God's wrath comes. You know, even, even this bravest warrior in verse 16, people who are kind of front and center in the army who you'd think would, would stand and fight no matter what, you know, they're going to drop their weapons, they're going to drop their armor, and they're going to take off because God's wrath is, is going to be very hard for Israel to take. So I know that was a lot of stuff about wrath and judgment on Thanksgiving, but let's, let's take a step back now. And we're, so we've kind of gone through, through what we need to see in the passage with the Gentile nations and about Judah and Israel. And let's kind of go back for a second and, and look at the takeaways that we can take from what we saw with the Gentile nations. So the first one sounds really straightforward, but it's that God knows these nations and he knows these cities individually. And they might sound, they might sound pretty straightforward, and it is, but it's important to, to not miss here that Amos is what Mike called last week, like an equal opportunity prophet. He's not here to just speak about what's going on in Judah and Israel, but he's here to speak about what's going on in all the nations that surround them as well. And it's not as if he just knows that these places exist. Um, kind of out there, God knows what's going on in these places. He knows what's happening in Damascus and in Tyre and in Moab, but he can you know, he can name what's happening specifically. He can name their cities, their citadels. And so he knows these Gentile nations, even if they don't know him. And the second kind of takeaway here is that God cares about what's happening to the people in these nations, these Gentile nations, right? Part of the message of Amos is that God's, God cares that the kings of these places have been killed. He cares that brutal military tactics were used against civilians. He cares that human trafficking was happening, that there was violence against women, that there was genocide. He cares about all these things. And so part of the message of the book of Amos is that there is a right and wrong. And it's not just that all is fair in love and war, even in the ancient world where, where things were very bloody. But God doesn't turn a blind eye to his atrocities and the crimes going on, even though they're happening outside of Judah and of Israel. So that's our second point. So our third point here, it's interesting that these crimes are against other Gentile nations, right? The Gentile nations here are, are killing each other. They're, they're doing terrible things to each other. They're selling people into slavery. It might be that some of this violence was also against God's people, against Judah and Israel, but we don't know that from the passage. What we do know is that, is that they are attacking each other and committing crimes against each other. And again, it's significant that God is speaking about the sin of the Gentile nations that is being visited upon each other. And that's for the last reason here. The fourth reason here is that God's wrath and his justice is coming for these nations because of what they've done for each other. And that kind of sounds, that sounds intuitive. You know, you're doing something terrible and God's judging you for it. But it's not something you actually see that much in the Old Testament if you think about it. Often in the Old Testament, we see foreign nations who are, being, who are being judged, who are being punished for attacking or enslaving or harming God's people, right? Like the kind of the classic example that's, that's brought up in this text is Egypt, right? Like famously, God brought all these plagues on Egypt and, and his wrath on the people of Egypt until their leader, until Pharaoh said, okay, you know, your people can go. And God's wrath there was used to free the Israelites from, from slavery. And so that, that's one thing. And that's something we're pretty, if we've read the, the Old Testament, we might be pretty normal, pretty, pretty normalized to we've seen a lot, but that isn't what, what's, what's actually happening here, right? And I, I don't want to jump too much. Um, often when I'm preaching on a 
book. I want to jump in and say what's going to happen. So I'll tell you just a little bit, but, but we're not done with the Gentile nations. Like they, the next few chapters, most of the next seven chapters are going to focus on Israel and what's going on there and their destruction and God's wrath. And, and we'll see more of that. But the end of this book of Amos also is full of hope. And there's a really interesting part of the, at the end of the, of the book that I have to come back to hear more about it. But, but essentially Amos says that, that God is going to rebuild the house of David um, and he's going to use it to rebuild God's people. And that's going to include people from all nations, not just Judah and Israel. So, so the inclusion of, of, of Tyre and Damascus and Moab and Gaza here actually is pretty important and pretty unique in the Old Testament in how they're treated. So the fact that God, God cares about them and cares what's going on with them and the fact that there's a plan for these Gentile nations that, that doesn't just end here, something really, really important for us to, to take away today. So, so now let's think about the takeaways we can take from what we've seen in, in Judah and in Israel. So the first is, is maybe the most obvious, but it's that God knows what his people are doing and he, and he cares what they're doing too. So everything I just said a minute ago about the Gentile nations being important is true, but it's clear in Amos 2 that really, you know, Israel is the, the main show here, the main thing that God wants to tell us about, right? The other nations got kind of two to three verses each and Israel gets a full 10 verses of attention. God's been seeing what's been going on and he's, he's got some notes, he's got some things he wants to say. And Again, you know, we have to keep in mind that this is all going on at a time where, based on the standards of the day, Judah and Israel were being really successful, right? Like they were, they were doing well in the battlefield, they were doing well in trade. You know, by the, by the standards of their day, things were going great. But, but that's not what God's concerned with. He isn't going to turn a blind eye to the sins of these kingdoms because of their success. He isn't going to let all of the pasha, all of the sin, all of the transgressions and the rebellion that's going on go unnoticed because he wants the kingdoms to keep doing well. He's not going to shove things under the carpet um, and, and just say, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. The results, the results look great. And, and we'll see that God does really care about, about the people, his people, and he cares what they're doing. And we'll, we'll see that as we keep going. So our second point here is that where the crimes that were happening in the Gentile nations were against humanity, against other people, Israel's are, are both against other people and against God, which is really problematic. We saw in the section on Judah, it's pretty short. The section on Judah is only two verses. It just talks about sins that are against God, about being unfaithful to God, about abandoning their covenant. And that's, those are, those are definitely problematic. But Israel has this toxic mix of both sins that are against other people, against humanity, and also against God, right? The sins of them selling debtors into slavery, of denying justice to the oppressed, those are crimes that are they're, you know, purely against people. They're really impacting those people. But there's also sins that have this mixed element that affect people profoundly, but also have a religious element to them as well. So, you know, we hear about Jewish men who are engaging in pagan worship that involves sexual morality in temples. That falls into this category, as does these people taking, you know, wine and clothes they've confiscated from the poor, um, that they've kind of, these are ill-gotten gains and taking them to the temple. And, you know, frankly, getting getting drunk and then lying down on these clothes because they're they can't stand those are those are these kind of crimes that are really an affront to god because yes they're against people they're impacting people but they're also they're also rejecting god and frankly kind of kind of spinning in his face so that brings us to to our last point here about the fact that what god has done for them is is super important so it's not just that they're you know it's not that they're sinning but the fact is that they should know better Right. And, and that's what I think God is really getting at here. And part of this, God talks about how he brought them out of Egypt. He provided for them the wilderness. And, you know, you have people who are descendants of slaves who, whose ancestors toiled away 
in Egypt under you know an unfair regime and and were dealt all kinds of misery. And once they are have their own land and are kind of doing better and are more established, what do they do? They make each other into slaves, right? Over over pay disputes, over money. So you know it's really significant that that they should they should know them better than to do that, right? The, the people whose whose ancestors were slaves, who you know every year celebrate the Passover where God freed them, should not be going and enslaving their brothers and sisters. And similarly, you know, God gave them the promised land. God, God, you know, helped them conquer it, and they became powerful, and and they became they became you know militarily successful. And and when they're in that position, and they're finally secure, and they're not you know at risk anymore, they're not slaves anymore. They turn on themselves, and they. And, and they sin um, against each other and against God. So I think it's really important in this kind of third point to just notice that, that Israel's sins are, are, all the sins are bad, but Israel's sins are really problematic because they should know better because all the things that God's done for them in the past. So let's, so that's all well and good. Um, that's all kind of what you, what they should know, what they should have done, but let's, let's kind of zip forward 2,800-ish years to how this, how this plays out for us and what it means for us. So Mike talked a little bit last week about this concept of kind of Old Testament communal guilt. And we've seen that a bunch today where there's these cities that are punished for what they're all doing. And we don't necessarily live kind of in that same regime anymore on, on this side of the New Testament, this side of Jesus and the cross, guilt is different, right? So we don't live in a place like Israel or Judah or Damascus or Moab of the 8th century BC. We don't live in a time and place where we practice the same faith as all of our neighbors, or even necessarily believe the same morals are important as, as all of our neighbors do. So, so what do we do with that now, right? It doesn't mean that we just throw up our hands and say, look, you know, these people in the city are doing this, these people are doing this, those things are horrible, our city's in trouble, so it doesn't really matter what I do, right? That's not, that's not true, that's not the gospel. We know that God cares how we live despite what's going on in our culture. And in First Peter, as a pastor, we'll look at this in a second, the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians who were being persecuted in Asia Minor, where they, they were, you know, this minority, and they were living in a hard time. And, and I'm just going to share this with you what, what, Peter, what the Apostle Peter says to the Christians in the first century, starting at uh, verse 11 here. He says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then skipping down to verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. And so in the same way that God cared what his people were doing in Amos' time 2,800 years ago, and how what he cared what Christians were doing in the first century AD, he cares what we're doing now and here in our city. That's really important for us to, for us to hear and to, and to sink in. And so the second point here on, about um, what this means for us is that there are things going on in this city that make God angry. And I think if you live in Hamilton, I probably don't have to tell you that in too much detail, but you know, there's, there's lots of great things about our city, but there are, there are issues, right? I work in downtown Hamilton and it's, it's hard to, to walk, you know, to and from my office without seeing people who are struggling with a number of issues, right? Who might be struggling with, with homelessness or, or mental health issues potentially, or with addictions potentially, or they might have suffered abuse, or they might have an overlap of those kinds of issues. There is just a number of things going on that we can see really easily um, in our neighborhoods and, and in our city. And there's lots that, 
that we also don't see. So I think I don't have to dwell on that too much, but I think we know there's things going on here that, that, that do make God upset because he does see them. Um, but the big question here, this third one is really, do those same things make us angry, right? We, if we know what's going on, like what, what are the things in Hamilton that would kind of make the list, like all the sins we've seen here today made the list for these cities, right? And, and the truth is that maybe we aren't even aware of some of the things going on that would make the list, right? Maybe we're too busy or too distracted or too caught up in our daily lives to see what's happening in our city and in our world. And that's very possible, and, and, and I get that. And in fact, I confess that I regularly struggle with this. Um, I know it can be really hard to strike a balance between, between work, between time with your family, you know, finding quiet time to spend with God, getting some physical exercise occasionally, hopefully. I need to do some more of that. Those can be really difficult things to, to, to balance and to do. And I actually shared something that, that this pastor and, and author um, has recently written in, in my last sermon, but I want to share with you this quote from this pastor named John Mark Homer, who's, who's in Portland, Oregon. And he has this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, where he talks about how many of us have this thing that, that he's kind of calling hurry sickness. And, uh, and here's, here's what he says. He says, Satan doesn't show up as a demon with a pitchfork and gravelly smoker voice, or as Will Ferrell with an electric guitar and fire on Saturday Night Live. He's far more intelligent than we give him credit for. Today, you're far more likely to run to the enemy in the form of an alert on your phone while you're reading your Bible, or on a multi-day Netflix binge, or a full-on dopamine addiction to Instagram, or a Saturday morning at the office, or another soccer game on a Sunday, or commitment after commitment after commitment in a life full of speed. And later in the same book, he also writes, both sin and busyness have the same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. And I think there's definitely some truth that we are, we are potentially indifferent to what's going on in our world and in our city, but it's just because we are too distracted and we honestly can't, can't even see it. But if we can get past all of life's distractions, which we need to do, and that could be a whole other uh, sermon series in the future potentially, um, we need to ask ourselves, you know, if the things that make God angry truly make us angry too. Right? We should take a careful look at our lives and consider whether we are participating or benefiting from systems that oppress the poor. And it might be really easy to say that we don't do things that oppress the poor in our city, that we're not, you know, keeping another house, we're not, we're not making people suffer in, in the ways they are. But it's also important that we don't, you know, we live in a different world than these cities of the cities of the 8th century BC. We live in this global world, and we need to seriously think about if what we're doing and how we're living is oppressing people who live in China or Bangladesh or Haiti or other places where we get all kinds of resources and all kinds of goods manufactured. We need to really think about that, you know, and we need to first be open to the possibility that some of the things for which God's judgment is coming are things that we're involved with, even if we're not involved intentionally. And second, we need to be open to potentially changing the way we live if we know that we are contributing to the oppression of others. And so um, the last point here before we'll just jump to a few, a few take-home questions is kind of what, what hopefully this sermon is and what this book of Amos is. Hopefully, the book of Amos in this series gives us an invitation to individually and, and collectively, you know, repent of our unrighteousness or, or our indifference, honestly. The Israelites didn't heed the warning Amos gave them. He came and he preached to them over a short period, but they really didn't listen and they didn't change. And about 40 years later, this foreign power, the Assyrians, came in and, and destroyed them and carried them off. You know, God's judgment and wrath that are predicted in, in Amos happened. And I'm not saying we're going to be conquered as a city anytime soon. I, I certainly hope we're not. But we just don't know how long we have, right? We don't know how long we have on this earth. We don't know when Christ is going to come back. We just don't. 
But what if for a second, somehow we didn't know how much time we had, right? If we knew that the city of Hamilton only had 40 years left, would, would that change how we live? Would it change how we relate to our city, to our neighbors and to each other? And what if we only had one year left in the city? What would, what would that change with how we live? And you know, while the sermon isn't necessarily, hasn't necessarily been about Thanksgiving and about being grateful for our blessings, I think one thing we can be thankful for when we think about Amos and, and the warnings here is for the time we have, right? We should be thankful that every day we have opportunities to be the people God wants us to be and to strive to live the way God wants for people to live. Because the reality is that's what's best for us as individuals, for us as families, and for our church community and, and for the city. You know, and one thing that struck me a bit in thinking about Amos is that he wasn't just, God wasn't just so upset about, about Israel and Judah going against the law and, and defying his commandments, but in part, it's because God is a good God and his law was a good thing for the Israelites and he wanted what was best for them. And them turning against the law and doing these terrible things to each other was, it was bad for the people they were oppressing, for sure, but it was bad for them and, and God knew that. And that's part of why he was so upset here. So maybe we should see this passage from Amos as an invitation for us, an invitation to at least pray for a more righteous and a more just city in the world, and for us to see if there are things that we can do to see those ends accomplished in our time. So I've been, I've been talking for a fairly long time, so I'll just give you these take-home questions kind of quickly. But the first question I want to think about as you go this week is, what sort of things would God identify as sins specific to Hamilton if it was included in this list of cities in Amos? right? It would be a different list than we might have in Toronto or Vancouver or Buenos Aires or London or anywhere else in the world. But, but what is it in our city that, that we think God would identify as, as this Peshaw, as these, as these sins? And our second question, what in our life distracts us from caring about and being angry about the sins going on in our city, in this nation, and in the world? That I think is, I think we could spend a lot of time drawing on that, but I would, I would encourage you to think about that one this week. And the last question that I kind of previewed earlier, but would it change how we live in the city if we knew we only had a certain amount of time left? If we knew that the city was going to be done in 40 years or in 10 years or in one year, would that change how we live? Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.